This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Hello and welcome to our session, US Politics, Even Worse Than It Looks. I'm Anne Mossop from the Sydney Opera House. I'd like to acknowledge that we meet on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I am a brief appearance here to introduce your host for this session, Simon Jackman. This is a session that the festival is delighted to be presenting with the US Studies Centre from the University of Sydney. It's their 10th anniversary year and uh, we're delighted to have them involved with the festival. Part of a really interesting strand running through the program about the extraordinary uh, developments uh, in US politics. Simon Jackman is a distinguished political scientist, somebody who, whose work in electoral politics is very... and the quantitative basis of how we understand that is very well known. He's recently returned to Australia from Stanford to become the CEO of the US Studies Centre, so we're delighted that he's here in this panel with Norm Ornstein and Shanto Iyengar. So please welcome them to the stage. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. Um, ladies and gentlemen, um, depending on who you talk to, one of the more dangerous ideas going around at the moment is the idea that Donald Trump might be the next president of the United States, that his policy proposals might become a reality. Of course, some people might say the same about, about Hillary Clinton. Of course, there's also a dangerous idea and uh, that underlies how we got to this state in American politics, and to help me with that today, on my right, I've got my former colleague, but still partner in crime, in research, uh, from Stanford, uh, Shanto Iyengar. Shanto holds the Chandler Chair in Communication at Stanford. Uh, we were both in the Political Science Department together, and Shanto directs the Political Communication Laboratory. Shanto is probably America's leading expert in polarization as a mass phenomenon, as a phenomenon in the mass public, through a series of really innovative experiments, sometimes in the lab, sometimes embedded on surveys. Shanto's probably single-handedly shed more light on the way polarization works at the micro level throughout American society than any, any other scholar uh, currently working on the problem. He's won numerous prizes uh, over his career that I, that I won't list here, uh, in the interest of time. <laughs> but uh, one of his more recent books, and one that uh, today's discussion will touch on, is News That Matters, Is Anyone Responsible? Um, and he's also written a, a very influential book called Going Negative, um, about, about uh, the effect of negative advertising on, on American politics. There's many of the contributions Shanto's made over a long and distinguished career. And welcome back to Sydney. Thanks, Simon. Uh, to my left, uh, Norm Ornstein, um, known to us uh, through his frequent appearances on, on US television and occasionally Australian television as well. Um, he's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, a contributing editor and columnist for the National Journal, and of course a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Look, Norm's done so many things over his long career. He's, he's got a PhD in political science from the University of Michigan, but then went into a much more public-facing career than the typical PhD in political science does in the United States, uh, being based in DC uh, for, for almost the entirety of, of his career, at, uh, largely at, at AEI. He's led working groups of scholars and practitioners that have uh, had a profound impact on the practice of American politics. Most particularly, uh, uh, Norm was part of a group that helped get the McCain-Feingold Act up, that is uh, perhaps the most significant reform of the campaign uh, finance system in, in, in the United States. Um, Norm's just made you know, so many contributions, so many books over the years, but the most, the most uh, prominent one, and one that actually is in our title today, even worse than it looks, is, uh, is, is the book he wrote with Tom Mann. Uh, it was a New York Times bestseller. A second edition is in the works. It's even worse than it looks, how the American constitutional system collided with the new politics of extremism. Um, thanks, Norm, for being back in Australia. Great Good to, to see here, you Sam. here. Um, I'll start with you, Norm. Um, you and your colleague Tom, and, and Tom comes to Australia, Tom Mann comes yes. to Australia frequently. He's, he's a, a great friend of Australia. 
Um, in April 2012, you guys made this extremely powerful intervention into American debate. Uh, and, and to, you know, the, the, the quote that, that everybody remembers from that is the following. The Republican Party has become an insurgent outlier in American politics, ideologically extreme, contemptuous of the inherited social and economic policy regime, scornful of compromise, unmoved by conventional understanding of facts, evidence and science, and dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. You and Tom traced that back to Newt Gingrich in 1994. Um, but how do we go from 1994 and Newt Gingrich all the way to Donald Trump today? Could you connect those dots briefly for us? Sure, I, I can do it briefly. I do want to start, Simon, by saying that uh, many of the people I've already met here in Australia, not surprisingly, are uh, uneasy about the prospect of a Trump presidency, even more in the United States. And I reassure my American friends by saying, not to worry, if Trump becomes president, within a couple of months he'll leave us for a younger country. So. <laughs> but I also want to reassure my Australian friends that Australia isn't young enough for him. So, <laughs> so you don't need to worry either. Uh, so we do uh, trace a lot of this back to Newt Gingrich. Tom and I met Newt Gingrich in 1978 when he first came to Congress. Right. He had been a, a history professor at a small college in Georgia, ran three times for Congress, finally got elected on the third time. And we uh, together had started a series of small dinners for members of Congress elected that year. It happened to be that our dinners included not just Newt Gingrich, but Dick Cheney mm -hmm. and Geraldine Ferraro among them. But Newt dominated the discussions. He said the last time Republicans had a majority in uh, the House of Representatives was 1954, mm -hmm. and uh, 26 years, I want to end that. We can't end it with business as usual, where individual members get elected individually, and the incumbents have big advantages, and uh, we have to nationalize this process and make people believe that Congress and Washington and politics are so awful, so corrupt, so dirty, that anything would be better than this. And it took him 16 years, and frankly, the Democrats who had been in power for so long, power does corrupt, they had become complacent, a little corrupt themselves, they were contemptuous of the minority, and they overreacted to Newt's prods. And in 1994, after two years of the Clinton administration, it worked. Now, it worked because midterm elections have a backlash, uh, and they delegitimized Bill Clinton in his presidency, but also use the ethics process and language and acting together in unison like a parliamentary party to blow things up. Right. Along the way, we had not just a series of scandals, but we had a populist uprising in the early 1990s, and we got the advent of new media, talk radio, Rush Limbaugh, and others. Now, Newt didn't really believe this stuff. He thought if we could blow the place up and then I become speaker, I will make it powerful again. But he brought in a group of people who really did believe that it was evil and awful. And all of that with the media started a new process of polarizing and tribalizing politics. What Newt did was not just use ideology, he used tribalism. These people don't just have a different set of views that are legitimate. They're evil and they must be removed. And they had language that they used in their campaigns to make that happen. Now you can take that forward and move towards the next time we got a Democratic president. Uh, Barack Obama comes in and the new generation of political leaders who called themselves the young guns, uh, really after the movie that, uh, with Kevin Costner. And it was, uh, Paul Ryan, who's now the speaker. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, Eric Cantor, who became the uh, majority leader. Kevin McCarthy, who's now the majority leader. They wrote a book called The Young Guns. They went out and took from Newt's playbook, delegitimized the president, tell people out there the Tea Party anger over the financial crisis boiling over, that if you bring us into power, we will bring Obama to his knees and we'll repeal everything he's done, we'll use every device we have, we will unite together against everything they want to do. And in the midterms in 2010, 2014, it worked like a charm. But by blowing up government, delegitimizing all of it, 
they created this larger sense out there that their own party leaders were corrupt. And all of that set the stage for a populist from outside to come in and blame everybody. And you throw into that the racial factor as the society changes, the immigration issue, populism when it emerges with difficult economic times always brings with it nativism uh, and protectionism, railing against the trade deals. And the seeds were set for Donald Trump. And I would just end by, by emphasizing there were a lot of things behind this, but this is so much a self-inflicted wound by a Republican establishment that now is powerless to do anything about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the old joke about, um, um, you know, <laughs> playing politics with the radical right is like making love with a bear. You don't stop until the bear's had enough. Um, yes. um, uh, but, uh, that's as good as I use, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a nice lead in Shanto, isn't it? Welcome. Well, thanks, yeah. thanks. No kidding. So look, let's, let's turn to your area of expertise, and, and that's the mass public. So, so Norm just described this, what's going on at the level of political elites, particularly in the Republican Party, how a strategy perhaps got out of control for them. But what's going on in the, down at the level of mass public? What's some of the things that your research has, has taught us about polarization as a phenomenon at the mass level? Well, I think it goes back to what Norm, Norm was just saying about the, uh, this notion of tribalism. Uh, the, fact, the fact of the matter is that the American public today is really uh, hyperpolarized, and by that I mean uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, the people who support the two uh, major parties, they don't really see themselves as people who simply disagree on the issues, uh, but instead they see themselves as, uh, as subscribing to very different uh, worldviews. Uh, two very different set of values. And as a result, over the last uh, 30 years, we've seen this trend of increasing animosity across the, the party divide. Uh, it's not simply, uh, when I say animosity, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not simply referring to uh, uh, you know, stereotypes, uh, people, uh, Democrats saying, you know, Republicans are the fat cats, they, they only care about the wealthy, or Republicans uh, talking about uh, welfare cheats, and the Democrats being the party of you know, tax and spend. I'm talking about much more uh, personal kinds of, of attacks. So I think you're all familiar with the, the, uh, the operative uh, chant at the uh, Republican National Com uh, Convention was, of course, uh, lock her up. Uh, and uh, for their part, the Democrats have said uh, things about Mr. Trump, including uh, he's a bigot, uh, he's a demagogue, and most recently, uh, the, former, uh, the campaign manager for uh, President Obama's uh, two successful races called him a psychopath. Uh, so there's plenty of blame to go around in terms of uh, uh, vitriol and rhetoric. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that when political leaders speak in those terms, uh, ordinary people uh, tend to believe what they're saying. Uh, so it's not surprising that rank-and-file partisans now believe that their opponents are scurrilous. Uh, they've, been a, they've been exposed to years of this kind of uh, vitriol, uh, this kind of attack mode of politics. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, what we have found is that today, uh, people uh, view their partisan opponents, that is to say, Democrats view Republicans, more negatively uh, than they view members of other social outgroups. So of course, you all know that in America, the racial cleavage is you know, historically uh, the most salient and the most powerful. But we have found uh, that racial animus is far less extensive than animus based on uh, party politics. Uh, I mean, the simple fact of the matter is that Americans today judge others' character, they judge others' personal worth in terms of their politics. And the most vivid data suggesting this social distancing based on political ideology is intermarriage. Now, I'm sure in Australia, uh, when you decide to marry someone, uh, the first question uh, is not, uh, which political party did you vote for? Uh, in the United States, I'm afraid to report, that is exactly the first question that comes up. Uh, we have some incredible data from online, the online dating sites. Uh, these online dating sites tell us that political ideology is the most significant predictor of matchmaking. And we have just recently completed a study in which we have surveyed a representative sample of married couples. And I'll simply give you the, the tip of the iceberg. Among 
newlyweds, people who have been married for less than five years, the percentage of people who are registered with the same political party is 75%. The percentage of people who are registered with two different parties is 9%. Uh, so basically, uh, the nature of polarized politics is such uh, that we simply choose to associate with those that we agree with. It's an amazing finding, that one. I, I'm, I'm blown away by it every time I hear it. And, uh, and we'll come back to that uh, in just a second. Um, for Norman, you, you brought up, and I, I want to put this to Chantel as well, I've seen a lot of analysis that says, look, Trump is out there talking about, you know, and we talk about what he's up to as populist. He's an economic nationalist. He's got an anti-globalization agenda. And there's a lot of research out there that wants to call BS on that and say, let's call it for what it is. He's making an overt, one of the more overt appeals to racial identity, uh, firing up, you know, making white identity and, and anxiety about white identity uh, politically salient in a way that we haven't seen um, since 68, yeah. perhaps. Um, what's your take on that? Is, is, does that ring true for you? You know, let's cut through the BS and that at, at, at heart, this is flat out about racial cleavages in American society, or is, is it, you know, race, there's more to it than that, that there is something really to these things, or race is the thing that combines them all, perhaps? Well, of course, uh, Trump now is, uh, as our uh, journalists say, uh, pivoting a bit today, uh, meeting in Detroit uh, with a black uh, pastor, uh, he has said, uh, in fact, a couple of weeks ago, he said, I don't know where people get this idea. Look at the number of African-Americans at my rallies in Pennsylvania and West Virginia. And then his campaign manager had to tell him that they were coal miners. Uh, so. That's not uh, true. Yes, no. That's not true. It's a joke. It's a joke. Uh, but... Uh, during the primary campaign, well, let's, let me take this even a little bit back, Simon. The fact is that uh, Republican leaders, for a variety of reasons, uh, used what we call dog whistles uh, to uh, play on racial anxieties for a long period of time. Now, you can take this back to the Southern strategy of Richard Nixon. Law and order was a dog whistle. Um, there was an overt approach to try, and George Wallace was a factor in 1968, but after that, to peel away working-class white voters with a lot of anxieties at a time of affirmative action and unions getting upset about a new generation of African-Americans moving forward. Uh, and they had great success at this. Now, it was a success that was leveraged by the fact that we had a Voting Rights Act that began to create the move of the white Southern Democrats over to the Republican Party, but Republicans also very cleverly worked with the African American community under the Voting Rights Act to change the districts so that they could pack African Americans and create more African Americans in Congress, but also really have a whole lot of white districts that would elect more Republicans. And we move that forward, and the discussion of food stamps, Newt Gingrich out of office, but a powerful man, a couple of years ago talked about the food stamp nation. Those are dog whistles on race. Donald Trump jumped in with both feet during the primary campaign and, and was not a dog whistle. It was a megaphone on race. And, uh, you know... Uh, when a, an African-American protester at one of his rallies was being roughed up by uh, some of his supporters, he egged them on and basically said, you know, I wish I could punch him right in the face. And he, at one point, talked about uh, having an African-American in his crowd and said, there's my African-American. There are all kinds of things that were said. Now he's changing his rhetoric a little bit, but the rhetoric that he's using is alienating African-Americans even more and appealing more to those white voters in saying, you're in horrible lives. Everything is awful where you live, and the Democrats have uh, been your party. Come to me. What the hell have you got to lose? That's not exactly a way to create a racial unity in the country. And what we're seeing is 
Uh, in some states, uh, the polls are showing 0% support for Trump. Now, there is a larger economic anxiety. White working class voters, and our, our country has been moving by 2% every year inexorably towards what will be the uh, majority minority population. The sense that they're being dislocated in their uh, power in the society combines with the fact that they've had stagnant wages and a belief that they're being screwed by everybody coming and going. But the overt racial appeals are there. And the other point that we have to emphasize, I think, over and over again is in the new media culture, millions of sources, uh, any restraints, any sense that things are off limits to say, any notion of shame is gone now. And, you know, everybody is one click away from the most vile pornography you can imagine, one click away from violence that is almost unimaginable, uh, video games that do that as well. And what's happened is racial terms that used to be at least not acceptable in wider discourse are now there more. And Trump is retweeting things from white supremacists and uh, basically very happy to accept support from people like David Duke of the Ku Klux Klan. And all of that is increasing the racial tensions. And then you throw in Mexican rapists, murderers, and uh, keep all Muslims out and have an ideology test and a loyalty test. And we haven't seen this since even George Wallace, when he ran as an independent, uh, didn't use the megaphone in quite the same way. It's really quite striking and, frankly, extremely frightening. Shanto, I want to get your, your views on that. Again, think, uh, given the fact that your scholarship is directly on what's going on in, in mass opinion. I would agree with pretty much everything that Norm just said. Uh, the, math, the mathematics is really pretty simple. If you're a Republican, uh, you look at the data in terms of uh, voter registration, okay? So there are more Democrats than Republicans. Uh, but then you look at the data on the distribution of, of race, and, 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 and white people in America are still a majority. Uh, that's not going to be the case for long, but today uh, they outnumber everyone else. So if you're a Republican and you look at the data and you say, well, look, there's more Democrats out there, but if I can make this election a conversation about race, I'm better off. Uh, if I can somehow sell the Republican Party as the party of whites, I'm going to be better off. And so as, as Norm was saying, the so-called dog whistles or implicit racial appeals have been out there from, for the last 45 years, ever since 1968, and Richard Nixon positioned himself as the law and order candidate. I mean, law and order became a buzzword uh, for African Americans rioting in the streets. Uh, Trump, of course, has taken it uh, to a totally different level. I mean, uh, I say implicit uh, racial appeals. Uh, Trump's appeals are almost like, hey, vote for me, I'm a racist. Uh, then it's not, not exactly uh, implicit. But I will, I will say uh, that, that the, uh, there are other factors that have made uh, uh, race uh, prominent. Uh, I, I'm not sure what it's like uh, in Australia, but, but in the United States, millions of people watch the local news every day. The local news, uh, you know, it's, uh, most uh, media markets now have found that local news programming is so popular that you are exposed to local news for three or four hours a day. I used to live in Los Angeles. Uh, where people can watch local news nonstop from noon through 10 p.m. And one of the things that makes local news so popular is that there is this fixation on violent crime. And we've actually tracked uh, the content of local news, and sure enough, the focus is on minority groups. Uh, invariably, you see perpetrators, suspects, who are either African American or Latin American. So there's a lot of uh, sort of built-in, uh, if you will, uh, racism that links uh, minorities with crime. And so if you looked at the, the TV ads that were run in this cycle, both by peop uh, people like uh, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump, they showed uh, uh, victims of uh, violent crime uh, committed by illegal immigrants. Uh, so they were basically explicitly connecting uh, crime with immigration. Um, so yes, I, I, I think this is... a a really a dangerous uh, strategic move. Uh, the decision to deliberately couple issues like immigration with crime, uh, it's, it, it's potentially uh, quite incendiary. Uh, and I'm not really, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really at times quite scared about the prospects of violence 
in the aftermath of these kinds of divisive uh, racial appeals. You know, Simon, let me just add one thing. Uh, the, the underbelly uh, of ideas here uh, go back to the beginning of the Republic and probably earlier. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the uh, late, uh, quite remarkable historian Richard Hofstadter wrote mm -hmm. uh, a couple of books uh, in the early 1960s, Anti-Intellectualism in American Life, uh, and uh, uh, a, a, another one about uh, extremism uh, in the society that point all of this out. Uh, the difference now in some ways is that they're not atomized in a way that people were in the past. You could have local branches together, uh, except for when the Ku Klux Klan was almost running Southern society for a period of time. These were isolated groups and John Birch Society in included among them. Now social media enable people to interact together and form a larger community, reinforce their own ideas, and there is a thriving media that makes a lot of money off of them. Among them, Breitbart, a website, and of course, its uh, editor-in-chief is now Donald Trump's CEO. But what's happened is that campaign these... CEO. Uh, yeah, yeah. These, uh, the campaign CEO. What's happened is that these uh, groups that were atomized before now can jump on the Donald Trump train and have a legitimacy because he is the official Republican nominee for president. And that has given them even more sense of legitimacy and a willingness to come out of the shadows and have a starker racial appeal. And our challenge in, a, in this new media world becomes that much greater. We've been, I'm glad we're talking about the media because Shanto, big area of focus for you. One of the things you hear about the Trump rise is that it, it came on the back of a symbiotic relationship with the media, uh, that profit-starved news divisions saw the Trump candidacy coming, saw the reaction to that first debate. Yeah. Uh, late, when was it, August, September of 15, where the numbers for that Fox debate were like about half of what they get for the Academy Awards for 13 guys in suits talking about the future of the Republican Party, um, that Trump is just the gift that keeps on giving for profit staff, news division. Is the media complicit? Is that the right way to even be thinking about it from the outset? Is it different now than it has been in, in, in previous cycles? No, without a doubt. I mean. Uh Unlike every other industrialized uh, democracy, uh, the United States has never subscribed to the theory of public broadcasting. So everything is on a commercial basis. So in that sense, the, the market share is critical. That's what drives uh, uh, revenue. And uh, Donald Trump is obviously someone who um, attracts attention. Um, and so he sells. And so if you look at the amount of news coverage accorded the Republican primary candidates, I've forgotten what the actual number is, but it's something like, you know, 60 or 70 to 1 in favor of Mr. Trump. And actually, we have a really a wonderful a natural experiment on the power, the economic drawing power of Mr. Trump. There was that one debate, you know, Mr. Trump decided that he would not participate. I think it was the, the Fox, the second uh, Fox yeah, yeah. debate. And he was worried about, he was thinking about the first debate when he had made all those comments about Megyn Kelly. And so he boycotted that debate. And we have, we have the Nielsen ratings. And guess what? Uh, minus Mr. Trump, uh, you had 8 million, 8 million uh, viewers less. So in that sense, uh, I mean, the media have a point. Uh, uh, they're in it to make money. Uh, Trump is someone uh, whose message is super controversial, and people are going to tune in. And so in that sense, he's been uh, absolutely given a, given a free pass. Right, right. Um, Norm, in, in the book with Tom, you guys use this powerful phrase, false equivalence, that, the, that, that media, and maybe not just media, by the way, maybe academia as, as well, yeah. by the way, um, in, in, in this struggle to be, you know, to, to appear even-handed, um, gave Republicans and perhaps gave Trump a bit of a free pass. Could you unpack that, your sure. false equivalence claim? Because I'm not sure an Australian audience has heard that one before. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a powerful uh, feature here. As some of this is built into uh, the norms of journalism. It's what you're taught, and of uh, political science, that you are supposed to present both sides of the story. You're supposed to be even-handed. The worst 
attack you can make on a journalist in the United States is to accuse him or her of bias. And we now have powerful outside organizations on the left and the right, but far more on the right, ready to pounce against those in the so-called mainstream media with charges of bias. So what's happened is, and people are also worried about the access that they have to individuals, that the coverage of many of the things that we write about in the book, which, by the way, makes a great holiday gift. Uh, <laughs> Father's Day is coming right up. It's, it's tomorrow. About tomorrow and uh, anything, any, any, any holiday will work. Uh, but, you know, we, we talk about uh, what was, for example, and, and what we know and has been documented, that Republican leaders got together on the night of Barack Obama's inauguration before he had served a day in office and devised a strategy where they were going to unite and vote against everything that he proposed or that Democrats wanted, like a parliamentary minority party, which doesn't work in the American political system. We know that a couple of weeks later, the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, a Democrat named Dave Obey, called in his Republican counterpart and said, we've got to do a stimulus. The economy is flat on its back, and we want to work with you Republicans. Tell me what you would like to see in it and what you would absolutely be opposed to. And his counterpart, Jerry Lewis, pointed up and said, Dave, I'm sorry, I have orders from headquarters. We are not going to cooperate no matter what. So we know that. But the stories that were written didn't reflect any of that. It was the Democrats didn't let them in and the Republicans opposed. And it was all an attempt to make it equal. Now, I had journalists, uh, we wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post at the Herald of the Opening of the Book, which the editor mm -hmm. uh, very adroitly titled, Let's Just Say It, The Republicans Are the Problem. It exploded out there, right. and we got an enormous amount of criticism, and a lot of reporters who said, that's not our job, our job is to report both sides of the story, and I said, your job is to report the truth. You know, if you had a hit-and-run driver run somebody over and you ran a story uh, that said uh, that hit-run driver complains that car was uh, uh, injured and uh, the uh, victim uh, wouldn't respond to requests uh, for a comment, that would not be something that would really reflect a, a reality of what happened. But that's how much of our journalism goes. And we got a lot of criticism from political scientists who didn't want to suggest that one party might be more to blame here than the other. Now, I would be the first to say there are no angels here in politics. It's not like anybody is free of criticism. Uh, people act as politicians in their own self-interest. But we have seen a sea change in the way the parties have reacted to policymaking right. over the last number of years, and the failure to report it accurately is, uh, is going to have serious consequences for the nation, and it's wrong. And with Trump, what we're seeing now is that the media are struggling to provide equal coverage to Trump and to Clinton. But Trump is so clever that if you look at the stories over the last week, all of the stories about Trump are, has he softened on immigration? Has he hardened again on immigration? Is he pivoting? Is he becoming more presidential? And the balance is all the stories on Clinton are about her foundation and the emails. Yes. Now, what's striking to me about this most of all is there's a little story barely covered today. Donald Trump's foundation has been uh, issued a fine because it gave an illegal political contribution to the attorney general of Florida, a Republican named Pam Bondi. What's behind that story is the Trump University was under serious investigation for criminal activity in Florida where it was centered. The attorney general asked Trump for a $25,000 contribution, which came in illegally from the foundation. Nonprofit can't give that money. And after that, despite her entire office of attorney general saying, we need to move forward to prosecute the foundation, she killed the investigation. If you want an example of corruption and bribery, that's pretty cut and dried. There's almost nothing on that. So... There's a real challenge here, I think, to our mass media, a gut check, and a challenge to our profession of political science that has to look at this in a straightforward way in terms of what's going on. And, uh, you know, you, we can applaud people like Shanto who are looking at data and pointing out what's there, even if it might cause some discomfort in some quarters.
Shanto, is polarisation asymmetric? It's more of a case of Republicans going off to the right quicker than Democrats are going off to the left? Well, if you define it in terms of ideological extremity, well, you probably know this better than anyone, Simon. Uh, it's probably the case that the Republicans have, have moved. Uh, but if you define it in terms of these harsh uh, feelings, uh, yeah. liking and disliking, I think it's uh, pretty symmetric. Okay. Uh, there isn't any evidence that the Republicans are really good at hating and the Democrats aren't. I, I think, I, I think they're, both, uh, it's a, uh, they're both gold medalists. <laughs> but there, there's one area that also has to be mentioned here. Uh, we often ask the question, do you think that we should resolve our political differences through compromise, yes, yeah. even if you don't get everything you want, but it will solve problems, or should you stand on principle even if it means that nothing gets done and problems aren't solved? Democrats and independents by about two to one say, we need to compromise. And that's fundamental to the American political system. Republicans by about 60-40 say, no, don't compromise. And that's asymmetric in a, in a way that moves beyond ideology or beyond uh, hatred to a fundamental question of whether you can use that and be able to govern. Um, where our time is starting to run down before we open it up for, for questions. But um, let, me, let me put, let me, so we can get some quick responses to this one. Um, what's next for the Republican Party here? So look, it, I, I would bet that Trump loses in November. Um, but meanwhile, the structural problems confronting the Republican Party don't go away. The demographic, the glacial change of pace there, 2% a year towards a more majority-minority yeah. country. I think this time around we're expecting the voting public to be about 70, 72% uh, white versus 28 to 30% uh, non-white. Um, you know, what, what's the way forward for the Republican Party here? This has been, I think, this will be a catastrophe for them in terms of dealing with that growing segment of, of the um, American public, um, not non-white uh, segment of the American public. Um, you know, so what's the plan? Like, why can't they just figure this out and understand <laughs> essentially their market share is declining, they've got to change the business model. Can they, will they, or is there even a they in that sentence, who is the Republican Party? Yeah, that's a, a series of very good questions. And of course, remember that after the defeat in 2012, Reince Priebus, uh, what a name, uh, <laughs> the chairman of the Republican uh, National Co Committee, I, I, uh, one of the things that our uh, wonderful Stephen Colbert pointed out is that if you take the name Reince Priebus and remove all the vowels, it comes out to R-N-C-P-R-B-S. But that aside, they did a famous autopsy in which they said, we will be a minority party unless we uh, change and appeal more to minorities. That's out the window now. Right. We are not a parliamentary system where you could form a series of parties where you have these deep divisions. We are a two-party system and it is extremely difficult to gain any traction in, in another way. And that's created uh, almost a problem of physics. Now, you know, in my cheekier moments, I say that the Republican Party after this election, assuming that Trump loses, will be like Iraq. There will be these, uh, the Shiites, and that's the Trump populists who will believe that the election was stolen, that no matter how badly he loses, they were stabbed in the back by their own party leaders. There will be the Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Sunni purists, yeah. who will say we need to purge the party ideologically and the only reason we, we lost was because Trump was a liberal and oh, wow. this is the Goldwater type okay. yep, uh, thesis. Yep, yep, yep. There will be the weak version of Kurds, which is the party establishment. That's Priebus, the Speaker of the House, who doesn't have control over his own yeah, party. Right, right, and, right. And, Don't forget uh, ISIS. Don't forget ISIS. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> And we have our version of ISIS, which is our talk radio hosts like Laura Ingram and uh, wow. Alex Jones uh, and Rush Limbaugh and uh, our blogs like Breitbart and others who thrive on chaos and who are happy if everybody gets blown up. If you listen to any of these radio shows or watch the television equivalents, they're filled with commercials about gold. Why gold? If the apocalypse is coming, you better have gold. <laughs> And I will wager that we will have a Trump media network where you can buy Trump gold, 
<laughs> Trump freeze-dried food, uh, Trump weapons, and Trump bunkers uh, to Trump prepare bunker. for that apocalypse. The Trump bunker. Yes. Wow. Trump hotels go to Trump bunkers. Trump bunker. Well, that goes on, by the way, like Iraq, for a very long time. Well, let, I'll just add one thing. Uh, there's been this talk in political science now for the last 50 years about realignments. Uh, every time something odd happens in American politics, uh, you see the political scientists dust off the realignment textbook. So what do we mean by that? Well, uh, that maybe there's going to be a fundamental long-term shift in people's uh, party preferences. Now, I think in terms of the demographics, it's quite likely. We actually have very good data on this, uh, that the, the Latino vote, I think, is, is gone, as far as the Republican Party is concerned. I think the, the Trump rhetoric and, and, and all this talk about deportations has convinced uh, Latinos that, that the Republican Party is just not the party for them. And given the population uh, trends that you've pointed out, I don't see how, uh, unless they want to remain a permanent uh, minority party, I don't see how they can uh, pursue that line of rhetoric. So they're going to have to uh, do the kind of pivoting uh, uh, that Norms have been talking about. They're going to have to somehow broaden their base. If not, uh, they, they're headed for extinction. Simple yep. as that. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I want to open it up to Q&A uh, uh, in particular. We always get to this point of that discussion that the Republicans are doomed, but nonetheless, they've got control of the US Senate and the House, so for a party that's doomed, yeah. and they're probably likely to Most control states. the House. And, yeah, and a lot states. of state, yeah. state legislatures and governorships. So we've got two mics, uh, one up there, number one, and one over here, number two. If you'd like to uh, pose a question to either of the panelists up here, please come on, come on down to the mics. And we're ready at mic two, so we'll, go, we'll start with mic two. Thank you. And Hi. if you could keep it short, make sure it's a question. Thank you. I wanted to ask you about what seems to be the increasingly flexible relationship with truth in US politics. So obviously, it's widely reported that Trump says things, they're not true, they're debunked, and everyone moves on. And it seems the response to a lot of Republicans to that, well, is that Hillary is just as untrustworthy. Maybe there's something about the false equivalence there. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on this kind of increasingly and, and, flexible... And let's keep these yeah, tight, because, so we can get through as many as we can. Uh, well, I mean, the psychology is very simple. It's called uh, motivated reasoning, uh, wishful thinking. Uh, something like 40% of Republicans uh, believe that President Obama is a Muslim. Uh, so when you've got super polarized politics, uh, the facts are simply inconvenient. It's much easier to invent them. What we also have, and this is, I think, is a challenge for our society looking forward, and in the end it may be true for Australia as well. Now you can cocoon into your own closed information loop and it gets reinforced by emails you get from your friends and relatives that tell you things that seem so persuasive that are absolutely false. But once you come to believe them, there is no evidence that will shake you from those beliefs. And if you can't have a society built around debate and deliberation to reason towards a conclusion, but you have people who can't even share the same fundamental facts, if you're talking about dealing with climate change and one party believes that it's a hoax perpetrated by evil scientists manipulating the data, how can you even talk about whether you have a market-based solution or a uh, uh, regulatory regime? And that's a challenge that is gonna be very difficult to deal with and if you layer on the racial divisions, it makes it even more uh, difficult. We'll go to Mike one, thanks. Thank you. In a, in a country where non-compulsory voting is the case, is there a chance, are, are the parties concerned that there may be, that this may be the, the Trump election Brexit style, where the, the Democrats don't turn up to, to vote because they think the election of Trump is so unlikely? So I would start by uh, offering the admonition that Kim Beasley gives me every time I talk about it. We don't, it's not compulsory voting, it's mandatory attendance really at the polls which you have and we don't, and that creates a different reality. But there also are questions about, we know that there are differences in results when you have surveys done with people talking to other people and those done in an automated way. The latter has stronger support for Trump. I would argue it's because of the methodology of the surveys and not because people are more reluctant to say they're for Trump when they're actually talking to a live person. 
but we can't be sure about a lot of that. Uh, having uh, said that, uh, one of the things that happened with Brexit, no doubt, is that as it got close to the end, everybody believed the conventional wisdom that the referendum would go down, and so you could offer a protest uh, against the status quo. If it is looks like Hillary's going to win widely, people who don't like either candidate may well cast a different ballot. It's possible, but I think unlikely that we'll see something like that happen. We'll come up to Mark too. Thanks. Um, hi, uh, I'm American, so I have a bit of a vested interest in what's going on here. But uh, I'm wondering if you guys have any explanation or some attribution for why Republicans seem to generally be so much better at using the media to their advantage, whether it's putting labels on things like death panels, whether it's the relative popularity of Fox News versus MSNBC, the failure of left-wing talk radio, all of that, and why the Democrats seem to be consistently so bad at it, especially somebody like Hillary Clinton, who's been in politics for so long, who seems to have absolutely no facility with the media whatsoever, but I don't think that that's unique to, uh, to her as a candidate. That's you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not, I think that's a fair assessment that, that the, the Republicans have crafted a sort of a rhetorical strategy in a more systematic fashion. So the use of sound bites, uh, the death panel example, for instance. On the other hand, uh, in this cycle, I think you could make a fairly strong case uh, that the Democrats have a pretty good strategy, uh, which is to simply remain silent and let, Mr. Trump, <laughs> and let Mr. Trump say whatever it is he wants to say. And, uh, and since you're American, uh, you probably get the, you know, she, she can simply run out the clock. Yeah, I would just say uh, it, it, it's a good electoral strategy. It's a, not a good governing strategy because what's happened is that you know, Hillary's relationship with the press corps has been a very, very difficult one for a long time. And it's a chicken and egg thing in part. She believes that they're deeply hostile to her and makes her contempt for them fairly widely known. And uh, she's right, they're deeply hostile to her and the way she reacts to them makes it that much worse. But what we get is a steady drumbeat then of stories about her ethical transgressions. Mostly these are stories about questions are raised about the relationship of the emails and the foundation to what happened in the State Department. Today, a particularly egregious example uh, in the New York Times and the Boston Globe that suggested that there was something nefarious because a couple of people at the foundation asked the State Department for diplomatic passports. Uh, only deep in the stories do you see that this was to try to get to North Korea to uh, do a prisoner uh, uh, exchange to get some journalists free. So it was a noble thing that we uh, applauded and not something nefarious. But the more you remain silent, the more this notion that she is not to be trusted uh, takes hold. And that's a danger in all of this. And she'll get elected, uh, perhaps, without uh, having to counter what is a much stronger presence on the right. But what happens after the election? That's something where a different strategy is going to have to emerge. Um, the, uh, I'll just weigh in real quickly yeah. on the, the Fox. You know, why Fox but not MSNBC? Why Limbaugh but left-wing talk radio? I, I just think it's a demographic age thing. Um, though, you know, the Republican constituency is a little more sedentary, um, older at home, watching TV, whereas I think, I think Democrats are, are, are kids, uh, and more so than, than Republicans, and, and are just harder to deliver eyeballs. Uh, or if they are consuming media, it's not, they're not watching cable TV, they're watching YouTube or, or something like that. But uh, that's my take on that particular one. Mike one, thanks. Um, relentless negativity is a style of opposition it was very depressing to hear you say it had worked so well for the Republicans in 2010 and 2014. It worked very well for our immediate ex-Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, but it's terrible for a country. How do we structurally, if you want it to be the playbook of opposition, that's what you do, because it works. How do we structurally remove something that's so maladaptive for a country, but so good for a party in opposition? Great question. That's an excellent question. And, uh, you know, I proselytized for a long time uh, in favor of uh, our adopting uh, mandatory attendance at the polls. And not because uh, high uh, participation is itself a sign of health. Uh, you know, the former Soviet Union got 98% uh, turnout. And 
Chicago on a good day can get 110%. Uh, <laughs> but the idea was that you don't have base-driven politics where you try and activate an angry base and suppress the other. If you know that bo ba both bases would be there, you would aim at uh, voters who are persuadable in the middle. Now, that may not be working as well in Australia now uh, as cultures change, but it's a lot better than what we have because our politics really are driven by uh, the base and also by this larger cacophony in this larger media where you need to shout to get attention, to reach a larger audience, and the anger is the way you do that. And uh, there's no easy way to get around it unless you have elites that are willing to try to transcend it more broadly and to take a short-term hit in return for a, a longer benefit. And that's getting back to Simon's question about where the Republican Party goes from here. The temptation is going to be to get the short-term gain in the next midterm election, which is the old playbook. Yep. Well, the only thing I would add is that uh, there's not much we can do about negativity in the American context since we have the First Amendment, which uh, guarantees uh, anyone the right to speak. And the courts have consistently ruled uh, that uh, if you're being attacked, uh, you have every right to counterattack. So the doctrine of more speech is really what governs uh, 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 the increasing use of negativity in the United States. The, the, the one thing I just want to quickly add, it's a, it's a theme through Norm's book and, I, and with Tom, and I, I didn't draw it out sufficiently, and, and Norm mentioned it a few times as he referred to parliamentary parties. The, the institutional configuration of American politics with separation of powers means that this inability to compromise is a real showstopper. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, in, a, in a parliament, like I, as an Australian, you look at American politics and you go, what's the big deal? The parties are behaving the way Australian parties behave. They never, they hardly ever cross the floor in the Australian parliament. What's the problem? Well, we've got a parliamentary system where that is kind of a stable equilibrium, if you will. But for the American system, where you've got Congress and the president sitting separately, the inability to get business done in the American setting, and that's what, you know, why I'm injecting it here, this argument about negativity and keep and polarization, it's so fatal and so poisonous in the American setting in a way that I, I think is, frankly, what we've come to expect. You know, intense partisan rivalry in, in parliamentary systems, England, Australia, whatever, but in the, you throw that onto the American system, and again, there's a big, big argument in your book that yeah. it's just so poisonous and so insidious. So take that to having divided government, Democratic president, Republican Congress, and then throw in the tribalism and the permanent campaign and the need to get traction for the next time around, and now the fear of this angry base. And here's a great case study for you. The Zika virus, which has now hit the shores of the United States, is starting to cause significant, terrible human damage. The uh, administration, the Centers for Disease Control, came out with a comprehensive plan long before this for about $1.8 billion to counter it. And the Republicans in Congress wouldn't pass it. In the House, they passed a watered-down plan for about half of that that also kept Planned Parenthood from playing any role, yeah, which right, would mean right. that for women who wanted to avoid being pregnant or women who were pregnant and needed counseling, one of their core areas was out. But at least they passed something. The Senate refused to pass anything, went away for seven weeks over the summer, the worst possible time. We still have no money appropriated for it. The administration's used uh, every technique to try and put a little money in, and they're just about running out of it. And the blindness to the need yeah. to have a policy uh, settlement, because of these factors, you're seeing play out in a way that is appalling. That's why it's so great to have you in the country sharing that sort of policy insight, the, 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 you know, a real tangible policy consequence of, uh, of that, sharing that with us. Thanks. Mike Wan, thank you. Um, how likely do you believe that it is that people will vote for independent parties rather than Hillary Clinton resulting in a Trump presidency? Good question. Well, we have, uh, you know, we, uh, one of the problems with uh, the United States, as you know, is we, we don't have a proportional representation, which is why we have these two major parties. In this election, however, we have uh, uh, Gary Johnson and, uh, and Bill Weld, two very well-known uh, former governors, running under the banner of the Libertarian Party. And they're doing, uh, by third-party standards in the history of American politics, they're doing extremely well. Uh, in many polls, uh, they are in double digits, uh, which is, by American sense, as I say, that, that is amazingly well. Uh, 
I am somewhat uh, pessimistic that they will actually live up to the, those numbers come election day. I think in the final analysis, uh, most Democrats and Republicans and independents will see this as such a huge, uh, potentially uh, cataclysmic outcome, the outcome of this election, that they will uh, be somewhat uh, risk averse and they will tend to uh, stick with the two, one of the two uh, major candidates. So, yeah, I mean, uh, one important point to keep in mind, people have wondered what is Donald Trump doing by trying to blow up any possibility of getting support from Hispanic Americans, Muslim Americans, Asian Americans, African Americans, how can you win that way? And the argument that some, uh, including a few close to his campaign, have suggested, well, what if these third parties get 20% combined, because we also have a Green Party candidate, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Jill Stein. And Trump still has that core base among whites of 40%. Maybe that'll be enough. Now, how do you do that? You drive Hillary Clinton's negatives even higher than they are so that she gets 40% or a little bit lower. And if that's the strategy, and we know that there'll be a lot of it there, we have to brace ourselves for a campaign turning even more vicious and negative than it has up until now. Now, I'm skeptical. We have had instances in the past. In 1992, when we had a populist movement on the left, the right, and the center, uh, Ross Perot, the radical centrist populist, got 19% of the popular votes. John Anderson, in uh, 1980, when Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter, got 9%. It's possible to get significant numbers. George Wallace got almost 14. But when you see polls that show the Libertarians at 10 and the Green Party at four or five, at this stage of a campaign, that's usually their high watermark. As you get closer to the election, people want to vote for somebody who could potentially win. So my guess is it's not going to be the factor. And the, the, the only thing I'd add to that is that I think Americans learned a, a, a harsh lesson in 2000 uh, with the native vote. Yeah. That, that uh, flirting with third-party candidates, absent an institution we have here in Australia, preferential voting, where you can vote one Green and, and send mm -hmm. a second preference back to Labor, um, for instance, um, or, or Nat to Lib or whatever it might be, um, <clears throat> that isn't available in the American context. And that native vote turned out to be pivotal in a close election. And I think particularly the left learned a lesson in yeah. uh, as recently as 2000, the Perot vote largely, you know, most analysis suggests that that took more from Bush than from Clinton. Um, but it's been a while since Republicans, uh, well, they're in a pickle, right? And, and that's yeah. in particular with Trump as their nominee. So I think that's part of the story as to why those numbers are as high as they are. But um, one more question from Mike Wan. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you very much for the presentation. Just sure. make one point. Economy, is the, is the point stupid, or as, as everyone says? But is this not the issue also? You concentrate on the Republican Party. Where's been the Democratic Party? And has it sold out? Because there's a stagnating middle class. They're looking for some sort of saviour or messiah. Where is it on the Democrat side? They seem to be pandering to Wall Street. If you're in the middle class, as we are here comfortably in Australia, who's your saviour? Who's going to look after your kids? Who's going to address your college loans? Who's going to address your healthcare costs? Great. Where is the Democrats in this side of the equation? And have they withdrawn from the battlefield and sold out to their sort of yeah. white-collar libertarian college graduates rather than their true supporter base, and hence the Republicans have seized the field. Yeah, great, great question. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought it up before we were done. We didn't talk about Sanders or anything about that, or, but Norm, do you want to have a yeah, stab at Yeah, and I think um, the, the tensions on the Democratic side, when, uh, you know, the, uh, the bailout in the fall of 2008 has had a profound impact on our discourse and politics on both sides. It generated the Occupy Wall Street movement on the left and the Tea Party movement on the right. The Tea Party movement is more powerful because they actually organized and got candidates and, and had some more coherence. The Occupy movement, which is somewhat characteristic of the American left, I think they occupied for a while and then they left. Um, but the support for Sanders, the resonance, was strong. Not strong enough to nominate him, nowhere near strong enough to nominate him, but it's there. We do have stark inequality now. We have had stagnant wages for people. We have a deep distrust of all institutions that starts with Wall Street, but it includes all elites. And if Hillary Clinton wins and becomes president, while she has plans, and some of them 
she adopted or changed because of Bernie Sanders on college tuition and, uh, and on health care, uh, among others. Uh, it's going to be a real challenge. Uh, and one way in which you can deal with that challenge is if you get economic growth. We've had more than Europe, uh, the Europeans have had. It's still fairly stagnant. And you also have to make sure, because clearly what's happened in the last few years is that the 1% and the one-tenth of 1% have gotten the vast majority of the benefits from this while others have struggled. Finding ways to turn that around a little bit and give them a sense uh, that uh, there's a future ahead for them and their children is an enormous challenge for the society uh, going forward. And if you add in the racial elements, uh, all of that means that we're going to have to find a way to govern. I, I just add one other thing. <laughs> TPP is going down. Uh, and what we don't know is what's going to replace the trade regimen that has been in existence really since the post-war period. Is it going to be going back to trade wars, which could be deeply destructive, or can we find something else that will provide a little reassurance for people that this is not just screwing them uh, and giving it to the elites? And if you don't have a functioning political system to at least debate these extremely difficult issues, then, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be even worse than it is. Looks... And will be. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, we have to end. We're out of time. But thank you, everybody. Thank you, Santo. <laughs> Don't leave me hanging. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thank you. And thank you. What you were going to do? Hi, <laughs> If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.